Welcome to another edition of Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. On today's show, we are coming home. Well, at least Matt is. I'm not from Jersey. We are eating tomato pie, searching for the Jersey Devil, and going to the Showa. Today, we talk about Zach Braff's 2004 movie, Garden State. My name's Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And I'm Matt. I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, as people who love movies. Then we gather for a conversation with our guest. In our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we ask what Garden State has to do with life and ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Garden State for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be November 13th, the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. And in our third segment, Postludes, Adam and I will take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading, watching, or following. Today, we are pleased to introduce our special guest, Mihi Kim Court is a minister, writer, mother, preacher, internet rabble rouser, and connected to too many networks to name. She has published three books that you should all buy so that she can buy herself a nice dinner sometime. <laughs> Those books are Making Paper Cranes, Streams Run Uphill, and Yoked, Stories of a Clergy Couple in Marriage, Family, and Ministry. We are happy to welcome Mihi to the show. Thanks for being here. This is the greatest. No, I'm just joking. I mean, it is a really great moment. <laughs> I really am excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're happy to have you here, me. Yeah, definitely. So, Mihi and Adam. Adam, on this show, we have watched a lot of universally beloved movies, like your Ghostbusters, your Spirited Aways, your Oh Brother, Where Art Thou's. Garden State is perhaps not one of them. This is Zach Braff's pet project. It finds him starring as Andrew Largeman, a uh, disaffected 25-year-old who comes back home to Jersey for his mother's funeral, intentionally leaving behind a pretty hefty regimen of psychotropic drugs, and then he tries to reconnect with old places, old friends, and, you know, potentially himself. For better or worse, this movie has become the poster child for too many millennial conversations about delayed adolescence, quarter-life crises, and, I guess in Andrew's words, staring into the infinite abyss. Critically acclaimed when it was released, Garden State has become a bit of a punching bag. Scott Brown wrote in Vulture in 2011 that all this movie did was to, quote, crystallize the profound self-absorption of Mope Is Me Bush age late 20-somethings. <laughs> but Damn. it's got its latter-day defenders, too. And so I guess my question is, are we going to join their ranks? Mihi, what do you think? Why did you pick this movie? And perhaps more importantly, how does it help us think about ministry in 2016? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it actually took me about four days to watch the movie. I mean, to rewatch it. The first time I watched it, you know, it, it was when it came out in 2004. Um, and I was actually, I just finished seminary or it was in my last year of seminary. But um, this time around, I watched it in chunks. And whether I had to stop for a moment, um, you know, just because I needed those also, I realized I needed to take it in in smaller doses um, or, you know, like at times um, I felt like I, I needed a little bit of a distraction from whatever was happening in the house. So I would hide out in the kitchen and watch it in snippets while the kids were watching their TV shows. Um, so it took me a little bit longer to to take it in this time. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, um, I can I can remember what it was like to watch it as a 20 something year old something year old. Um, 
And uh, I feel like um, this whole notion of vulnerability and authenticity, that was just starting to um, become sort of a thing at the time. I don't know. It didn't seem like um, that was something that was always encouraged. And so, you know, obviously I just finished seminary and I was um, searching for my first call and trying to figure out, um, you know, what it meant to be in this sort of transition, um, this sort of limbo stage. And then this movie came along. Um, uh, Now I look back and I feel like they um, were more caricatures of that 20 something life. Um, But I did, you know, when I did get to the end of it this time around, I did appreciate it for what um, I felt like it did for me during that particular season of life. Um, But again, there was just something about the way uh, this time around um, with these eyes, with these very old 38 year old eyes, there was something about the way the characters were presented, um, uh, you know, not shiny or pretty or glitzy or glamorous. And I think that's what resonated with me then and still does to a certain degree, something about, um, you know, that brokenness being right on the surface of these characters and their stories. Um, and again, that that sort of vulnerability was um, still pretty novel. But now, um, yeah, it, it, it graded on me a lot. And that's probably why it took me four days to watch the movie, um, to take in take it in in, in smaller chunks. Um, the overly quirkiness of the movie kind of overdoes it for me. Um, the smushy, sensitive um, male protagonist um, and Andrew Largeman. And we could talk about that name a little bit about you know, the potential significance in that name. Sure. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, I love Natalie Portman, but she really was really annoying in this, um, in this movie at so many points. Um, there were some really cute and endearing qualities I could see, but it just felt very, um, just, I don't know, overdone again. Um, uh, the stereotypical empty father-son relationship, um, just a final turning point at the end with a visit to the quarry and that sort of fancy boathouse, like the, the, you know, the tiny house, tiny homes. That's a thing now, right? Um, and then I think we're going to talk about this um, a little bit more. Um, well, I hope we do, is the whiteness. The very, very sheer and utter whiteness of the movie. Um, so what, um, why, so why did I pick this movie? Um, I think there's just something still that resonates with me um, in terms of thinking about um, just that season of life. And so I do campus ministry. And I work, you know, primarily with young people between the ages of uh, like anywhere 18 to 22 ish, um, you know, and some grad students. And there's still that angst there, you know, Um, and I'm even thinking about some of the statistics that we hear from the counseling and psychological services on campus. Um, They come out and do presentations on um, what their services are and some statistics on who uses their services. And the one thing that always sticks out to me is uh, is that uh, freshmen, um, every year more and more freshmen utilize their services and more and more freshmen are, be- are getting diagnosed with anxiety. I feel like that's pretty significant. Um, and it's it seems like uh, it's important um, for us uh, in campus ministry to realize um, that that's, that's our context right now. Um, in terms of some of the mental health issues in the movie, though, um, I don't know. I don't know if it does uh, the reality of mental health a service or a disservice, you know, right. by um, by these sort of, uh, sort of shallow and surfacey, like, you know, just the, I mean, that's a reality. People take pills. Um, but you know, just the first scene where he opens up that, um, that cabinet and, um, I, I don't know, just, I mean, the relationship between him and his father, the psychiatrist, um, I just, I wonder, I wonder what, how it presents mental health and if it is positive and if it would be something that would help people who really do struggle with mental health, especially at a young age, if they would feel like they'd be able to, to talk about it and to deal with it. Um, and then some things just around gender identity. Um, it really 
makes me um, makes me think a little bit more about uh, the way we present gender identity, and, and in a time where um, you know those boundaries are becoming uh, much more fluid. Um, you know, we've got that sort of male protagonist thing, and then we've got the the female sort of sidekick. Um, just wondering and thinking a little bit about how we present um, identity and we live into that. So there's a lot to talk about here. I guess my, my, my first question to you, Adam, though, is, is I think at a kind of a bird's eye level, is it possible to outgrow a movie? I mean, in some ways, I think as Mihi has recounted their experience of watching it in 2004 and the experience of coming back now, it's kind of hard for me to separate Garden State from kind of my own memory of watching it then too. You know, when I, when this movie came out, I was a self-absorbed 25-year-old white man without a lot of direction in my life. And so part of my ambivalence about the movie is I think also just kind of ambivalence about who I was on my own journey. So do we get to a place where we can just watch this movie for what it is? What do you think? I think the answer is yes to both questions. The first question, can we outgrow a movie? I, I think the answer is yes. Um, and can we come to peace with the movie for what it is, is also yes. So this movie is um, white, middle-class, existential angst questions. I mean, that's what it centers around. I mean, to the extent that there are uh, experiences outside of that, they are used only as either plot devices or ways to forward the character and questions of the central protagonist. Uh, so I, Mihi's right that this movie is so, is so white and um, of a particular time in a person's life. Can I just point out for a second that the opening shot of the film is him waking up in a perfectly made white bed with perfectly made white pillows? <laughs> Right, and and it begins the movie. You you get the sense that he's almost uh, obsessive compulsive by how ordered everything is, yeah. and then the rest of the mm. movie he's just sort of sloppy and a slob. Yeah. <laughs> but he's so, also what, forty five minutes late for his job. I mean, it's not it's, it's right where he appropriates a Vietnamese person right. in Los Angeles. I mean, there's some strange yeah. there's some strange decisions made in this movie. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and so. To the extent that it's asking questions, what does it mean to be a white middle-class guy suffering under the weight of the past and the hopes of the future? Um, Those questions are still real and honest to that particular experience. And to your point, Matt, um, I I too saw it at that point in my life and, and believed that what he was going through was analogous in some small way, big way, to who I was. Um, in my 20s, the questions of that moment felt real. Um, and so to the extent that this movie deals with white quarter-life male questions, I think it tries to do it honestly, and it has some charm. But, I mean, I have to say those questions aren't really my questions any longer. Uh, and the problem is, if these aren't your questions or have never been your questions, there's not a lot in this movie to meet your experience. Right. Uh, there's no indication that even another set of questions might exist in this universe. Um, I, I mean, the the fact that a woman's experience might come to bear on um, what it means to live with anxiety so that you have to 
so that you feel like you have to lie all the time is never explored with any real depth. Um, you have a, a, a father who is, uh, who is one note and used as a foil and the villain in some ways when really this is someone who's lost uh, a partner and is totally at sea in trying to raise a kid and doesn't know how to do it. None of those questions are ever really explored. And if we empathize with people outside of Andrew Largeman, we begin to realize that the world is much bigger than this movie would ever uh, allow us to see. Um, I've outgrown it. But I think that there's this opportunity to also recognize that though I've outgrown it, um, it can still represent a real time in my life. Um, and it's a time in life where being someone else felt so important. At 25, I was trying really hard to become someone new so that someone who brought up some past accomplishment or identity was really hard to hear. And I think that this movie actually does represent that pretty well. Uh, as you see Sam, um, who has to watch this ice skating video uh, of her as a crocodile. And as Largeman resents being defined by actions that he took when he was nine years old, you realize that that pain and that hurt um, that it, that it that it's real. I'm at a place now where I'm really thankful for these past lives that I've lived, and I don't feel like I have to automatically individuate from who I was when I was a teenager or a young person or even when I was 25 any longer. Uh, I think, for me anyway, um, I don't uh, I don't think that the past has to reflect who I want to become. And it can just be the past. And it's something that I love. And I can love that 25-year-old who loved Garden State without looking at Garden State now and saying it's great. So one of the big conversations that came out of this movie is the, the trope of the so-called manic pixie dream girl, which was uh, coined <laughs> actually in, in response to Kirsten Dunst's character from Elizabethtown one year later, Cameron Crowe's movie, and which in some ways it shares a lot of tropes with Garden State. But it's very commonly kind of retroactively applied to Natalie Portman's character here, the, the woman who seems perfectly conjured by the screenwriter just to satisfy the emotional needs of a male protagonist's journey, which, you know, does seem to be the case. So I, I guess... You know, and particularly to you, Mihi, like Adam and I both were in some ways these kind of wandering white male characters. You obviously were not. Is this movie a uniquely male experience? What grabbed, you know, tell me a little bit about your experience of it, um, seeing it as a woman. And, and let's talk a little bit about the gender dynamics in the movie. Yeah, um, I mean, well, I'm kind of still even um, rolling that question around in my brain, the one that you just asked about, you know, growing, outgrowing a movie. And, and I think about, um, you know, I mean, it's just a very basic thing. Movies like a stories, do we outgrow these stories or do they, um, do they provide some kind of, um, new shade to our lives, um, in the current context and our current season of life? Um, are we able to, I mean, are they able to shed some, gosh, sorry. Are they able to shed some light on, um, 
our history in a different way and as we're looking back um, and and can that impact, you know, our present day context and what we think about ourselves and our relationships and that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't know what the, like how I would answer that question in, um, in particular with this movie. Um, but I mean, I think that there's something, and I, I felt this too when I was watching it at the time that um, I'm used to not seeing myself in the sort of protagonist position. And so I do find it very easy to identify with the sort of fringe characters, the ones that are are there as sort of supplemental to that that main character. And so it was easy for me to, um, you know, to imagine a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, what it would be like, we, you know, what it would be like to be like Tetembe, you know, like a foreign person in this um, country and living um, with uh, a family that wasn't my own um, or uh, a little bit of, of Natalie Portman's character for sure. Um, and then um, some of the other sort of side characters. I think it's just an and just something that um, because of my own experience growing up, being sort of on the margins and the periphery of society, um, because of being an immigrant uh, and being um, part of an immigrant community and faith community, that's um, that's just sort of uh, that's sort of the perspective we have or I have or and have had. Um, um, and a lot of that is about survival too, is realizing that, okay, so I'm not in the center of this story. So what are some other, where are some other places that I can insert myself and feel like this makes sense, or this is speaking to me or resonating in some way or is compelling in some way. Um, in terms of Natalie Portman's character, um, it's hard to see beyond, you know, like you said, again, like the white female suburban um, character that she is. Um, but some of those, those rough edges to her personality. Um, just, you know, her struggle with anxiety, her epilepsy. Um, she's living at home with her, her mother still. And, um, she's kind of a weirdo, I'm not going to lie, but a very sort of interesting and lovable weirdo. And I could see that being, um, being sort of permission giving, you know, for, um, people at that age or even younger, maybe, um, you know, when, if I had watched his movie as a high school student, I would have felt like, okay, here's someone who's attractive and, um, and interesting and funny and kind of weird, but is still able to have some kind of meaningful relationship that works out for her. Um, whether that uh, would happen on a regular basis for myself is still a question, but um, it, uh, I think that for me as a woman of color, it is difficult. It's definitely difficult to identify with a lot of stories that center sort of the white, um, whether male or female perspective, um, and yeah, that gets kind of problematic. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what else to do with that. Yeah, fair enough. Adam, what do you think? Well, I think part of what the this character type does is it exoticizes a type that we've known for a long time. So the, the traditional female lead is either... Um, hyper competent and needs to be taught how to love or is um uh, is unable to move through life without the protection of a male so these two types of women show up within film and story over the last hundred years over and over and over again and what the manic pixie dream girl does is in some ways exoticize that. So Natalie Portman is on the one hand odd and doesn't seem to apologize for it. Um, she also seems pretty self-assured in all of the things that she does. Uh, there's a moment in the movie where she's able to uh, 
push back at large men because uh, they're going on this sort of quest and they don't know where they're going to go next. And he says, well, I want to protect her. And she says, I'm not innocent and I, and I don't need your protection. And you get this feeling of steel that comes out of her. That's really nice. But the movie subverts that almost immediately by making her funny and saying like, Oh, you really care about me. Right. And so she has to hide this stuff, this steel with humor, um, which is the sort of male fantasy to some extent, which is, is this person competent? Are they individuated, but are they not going to totally emasculate me? If, um, if we're in a position where, um, we disagree and to that, to that extent, it makes me feel a little icky from time to time looking at her character and also being attracted to it. You know, it, it, it raises in me my own questions about how this particular type has been built for the, um, the supposedly liberal progressive edge of male citizenship in this world of ours. And it says something about a particular type of masculinity at that edge, too, right? I mean, as Mihi pointed out, his name is Andrew Largeman, which seems to play with some kind of masculine tropes. On the other hand, he, at the very beginning of the film, he is applying makeup to, to, to his face to, blend, to go work at the Vietnamese restaurant. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some interesting tropes about... Um, about masculinity and white masculinity that play in this film too. And I, part of that to me is kind of the, the superstructure for how the movie wants to talk about grief. I mean, he goes home to, to be at his mother's funeral um, and he has almost no emotional reaction to being there. Then halfway through the film, we spend 10 minutes with Natalie Portman's character burying a hamster and the hamster burial ends up being a kind of stand in for what the liturgy of the funeral ought to have been if it had been done Mm. in a way that would actually have been evocative for him. At the end of the film, he finally gets to shed literally one single tear. He says earlier that he hasn't (laughs) cried in like 15 years. So we get to this for my money kind of unfortunate bit where Sam was literally collecting his one tear in a Dixie cup. Uh, there's there's this thing in the film about his need to come to terms with grief um, and the the kinds of masculinity standing in the way for that. And I couldn't help but think about the work of the church here too as kind of a necessary facilitator of grief. So what is this film saying about grief? And does it have wisdom for us and how we think about how to be sad together? Hmm, that's good. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I come from like such a different cultural background when it comes to dealing with grief. Um, yeah. I think, um, I mean, just stereotypically, I'll just talk about my family that um, just in general growing up, like you would not see a lot of public displays of kind of any kind of emotion. Um, but it was for some reason, for some reason, the church provided a space for uh, my family. And, you know, the church uh, was a Korean immigrant Presbyterian church. Um you would see lots of expressions of emotion um, and hear them verbalized um, a lot more. And there would be a lot of crying. And and I'm thinking about mostly um, like revivals and different retreats that um, they would hold. But it was this strange kind of ritual of like, okay, so we're not expressing our emotions on a regular basis for whatever reason. Probably for the most part, it's, it's it has something to do with discomfort and the wider sort of um, cultural, whatever, um, the society that we were living in at the time. Um, 
that uh, that there was a sort of expectation that um, immigrants and foreigners were not to be expressive. Um, and I think that there's a particular sort of um, expectation with Asian Americans um, to not be emotive um, and to be very, you know, like Confucius, you know, to be very stoic and um but for some reason, uh, churches provided uh, the, the particular church that I grew up in provided a space for my family to be very expressive and emotive and to just be human. And it was one of the few times that I would um, I remember growing up and seeing them, you know, being able to cry very freely and being able to be loud and laugh really obnoxiously and um, tell stories and, and that sort of thing to really be fully who they were at the time. Um, so in terms of grief, like I, I still sort of struggle with, um, with the way the movie presents, you know, how do we make space for all these different expressions of grief? Um, it's hard to, to sort of tease out, um, some of the, like you said, gender expectations, um, with how people deal with grief. I mean, you have, uh, uh, Natalie Portman's character, um, just like immediately sobbing when, um, when Largeman talks about like, oh, my mom died like this past Sunday, you know, he's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're actually crying. And she's, you know, she's expressing that really freely. Um, it's, but it's, yeah, but it's sort of bothersome and, and um, problematic for me again, that it, it's coming from uh, this sort of side character who happens to be female. Um, she's the, like, it's expected that she would you know, she would show that kind of emotion, but for Andrew, like that would never happen. And so, um, for me, there are so many different intersections of gender and race and culture that come into play here when we're talking about, um, how do we make space for and room for people to grieve and to experience, um, you know, lament and sadness and, um, the church, I feel like is a great radical space for that. Um, and I think that in some of our, in some of my gatherings with students, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in smaller groups, that um, like if there is a need to have that feeling of grief or to express it, um, you know, there's no way to, to force it, but to just, you know, provide some sort of invitation um, and that's it. And but not but not impose like, you know, this is how you should be grieving or this is what it looks like. And this is, you know, these are the amount of tears that you should cry kind of thing. Um, but I think uh, I mean, I think there is some difficult things that the movie presents to us in terms of, um, you know, we've got these very narrow expressions of grief. Um, then at the same time, I think like, OK, you know, everybody has their own process and their own way of grieving. And so how do we hold both of that um, in in these spaces that we try to create, whether a church or a ministry or whatever? Yeah. And I think I think holding both of those requires this set of, I don't know if it's maturity or it's the ability to, on the one hand, recognize all of those voices that say it's not okay to cry and from wherever they come from, whether it's a sort of vision of masculinity, whether it's a sort of cultural construct that says you shouldn't cry in public or public displays of emotion are, um, are a problem. Can you hear that and hold it as honest as, as something that is very real in your life. And can the church make room for that voice to be present as well? So I think about this in terms of this movie is really interested in, um, on how the past affects people in the present. So central to Largeman's character is that, you know, he pushes his mom 
she falls over the dishwasher and she hits her head on a counter and um, and is made a paraplegic. And so he has to live with that. And the consequence of that is um, all of this medication is being sent away to boarding school, is um, estrangement from his family in many ways and from his larger community. And so he comes back to New Jersey with all of these tremendous voices of the past sort of telling him who he is. Um, and over and over again, people are trying to figure out who he is. Like, oh, what are you doing back? Aren't you an actor? Aren't you this? Or remember the time we did this? This is sort of inevitable when we come home. Uh, and I feel like he's trying to escape those voices in order to find out who he is. And I'm thinking, no, you got to hold both of those because their perception of who you were in the past and the constructs of who made you, that stuff matters. Mm -hmm. It does matter as much as we'd like to escape it. And the point is not to hate that stuff. It's to learn to love that stuff too, because that is part and parcel with learning to love yourself. It's learning to love all of the weird voices that also are in your head that also tell you who you're going to be. Um, I, I remember being in a pastoral care course and, um, in seminary and we were talking, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just name it. So Deborah Hunsinger uses puppets, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we all know this. She, wears, she uses yeah. puppets and there's the giraffe puppet and there's this jackal puppet. For those of I'm you like, who were just listening to this, you were missing that in the Skype window, Adam is holding up both of his hands <laughs> like they are puppets and, and reminding us of this experience physically. And I, I can't communicate that to you except just to tell you. So please, Adam, continue <laughs> with your puppet show. Shut up. So I'm going to keep doing it because it helps me think. Um, so there's this giraffe voice and it tells you all the good things about yourself. You know, you're strong, you're, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're smart, you, um, you are competent, you can do the work that you've been called to do, you've got a call, it's great. And then there's this jackal voice. And uh, this jackal voice tells you all of the ways that you're not good and that, um, and those are just some of your insecurities that sort of sit in you. And I'm sitting in class and I'm like, Dr. Hunter, I hate that jackal voice. And she goes, no. <laughs> Adam, the point is you have to learn to love that voice too. And I, like my mind went, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it was one of the first times that I had heard a, a sort of more holistic vision about how to love yourself, mm -hmm. even the weird parts of yourself, even the mm -hmm. sort of strange voices that come in your head. And um, and I think that that can be an empowering way to live into whatever strange rituals we actually have to use in order to grieve, whether mm -hmm. they're born of culture, whether we see them as healthy, they, they're all going to be locally constructed anyway. So allowing them to be that and come out with some measure of idiosyncrasy is, I think, really helpful and healthy, ultimately. Mm -hmm. I think we should move on to talk about preaching and the lectionary texts that are coming up. This is the next segment of our show is called Preaching to the Choir. And so we're going to look at the passages for this coming Sunday, which is November 13th, year C, the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time. We've got uh, Isaiah's eschatological vision in chapter 65. We've got, got Jesus's apocalyptic vision in Luke. We've got Paul's warning against idleness to the Thessalonians and a psalm of hope. Mihi, as you look at these passages for Sunday and you think about Garden State, what jumps out to you? What sparks your imagination? I, I 
try to approach these scriptures trying to find, um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know, whatever Bible exegesis or preaching exegesis, um, you know, uh, tools that they would tell us not to do this, maybe, um, to find a thread throughout all the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so whatever. Um, so obviously hope was, um, was something that, uh, really, uh, came to the surface for me, um, in all the scriptures is sort of posture towards a future that, um, is expressed in some kind of resilience, you know, persistence in the present, whatever that might look like and feel, um, whether it's in Luke's sort of, like you said, that sort of grim, um, apocalyptic vision, or, or it might be that sort of, um, you know, this expression of frustration within a community, like the church in, um, Thessalonica, um, there's, uh, this, 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 uh, continuous um, vision and purposefully and deliberate, deliberately and intentionally looking towards um, what is still on the horizon. Um, and then another thread was the sort of notion of work, um, especially in Isaiah with uh, God the creator um, and just the different images of people building houses and um, all the different ways that uh, people labor, um, not laboring in vain or bearing children for calamity, that there would be um, this abundance, this sort of this promise of this abundance of life. Um, and again, in Thessalonians, um, you know, what do we make of idleness and work in the context of churches today? Um, I think about, uh, you know, how, how do we define work and labor, you know, that's productive in, in this sort of capitalistic society that we live in. And, um, and then in Garden State, um, it's, you know, that last scene where they're trying to find where they're, um, what's that kid's name? I can't remember anybody's name. The other main character, um, Peter Sarsgaard, what, what was the name of his, his character? Um, you know, the, the gravedigger guy. I know you're talking about, and I've totally forgotten. <laughs> What's wrong with it? Yeah, <laughs> he was like I, totally blanking on that. It's so sad. Where's the Wikipedia? I feel like I should have that up. So anyway, so he's leading them. Um, you know, it's like his, it's Largeman's last day. He was planning on spending it um, uh, with Sam. And, um, but then, you know, he ends up with um, whatever that guy's name is there. He's led on this like kind of wild goose chase, his adventure. Um, that he calls it, um, and they end up at this um, at this tiny houseboat, um, and then it turns at the edge of a quarry, right? I yes, mean. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think about like you know what do we? Oh yeah, he's <laughs> there was something about like the whole money issue. Like if you need money, I can give you money, and he's like, I'm not going to take any money. I don't take money. Um, that right. ruins friendships. You know those kind of favors, and so there's just whole notion of work is just kind of a thread throughout. Obviously, with like uh, the acting stuff and him working at that Vietnamese restaurant, and then what does Sam do? I mean, it doesn't seem like she has a job really, or does she? She's like a um, paralegal. She's right? working and at a law firm, right? And for the insurance that, money. Yeah. It gives her that incredible insurance. So all these different and interesting um, uh, notions of work and why we work and how we work. And um, so, you know, that's in Thessalonians. And then um, and, and then the boat and the boat owner, the guy who lives on the boat, he has this strange right. job of just looking after this quarry that right. and exploring it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the side, he trades like antique jewelry. And so that's how all their stories converge and um, all their different uh all the different work that they do that converges in that one moment so that he can get that necklace for, for large men. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's mainly, mainly what, what sort of jumped out at me. And I guess, I mean, I'm even thinking about like, how do we connect hope and work, you know, um, mm, right. Yeah. 
our vocations and how we um, we continue to do what we're doing, even if it's fruitless, like it often is or feels it often is in campus ministry or in youth ministry. Right. In ministry. <laughs> um, in, in ministry. Yeah. What am I saying? <laughs> in general. Um, and so how do we keep working um, with that hope sort of as a drive and motivating factor in, in everything we do? Yeah, I was thinking about that Thessalonians passage, too, because it, uh, you know, it, it it kind of feels like this kind of Protestant work ethic passage, right? That he, um, pa- Paul is angry at the folks who are, quote, living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Uh, and it seems like you could hold up Garden State as this kind of paragon of some kind of stereotype of um, millennials living in their parents' basements, not getting real jobs, all those kind of broadsides that get thrown around. Um, and I think this I think this passage gets tricky for that reason because it it threatens to hook onto this kind of broad cultural stereotype. But I, I also think the passage turns in some really weird ways, and I will p- put on a kind of my, my weird Greek hat here, but it the the idleness that Paul describes It's not weird. It looks good, Matt. <laughs> the, the Greek hat looks really good. Thank you. It's thank like you. a Greek it's sailor cap that's yeah, yeah, like yeah. perched at the yeah, side. Yeah, no, it's, it's, very, it's, it's 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 very fetching. Uh but like the the idleness that Paul describes is not really like not working. It's um like in the Greek it's something closer to working against the order. It's like being disorderly. And then there's this great wordplay when he says, when he talks about busybodies, what it says in the Greek is that it's people who are working around the work. It's like the people who are meddling mm-hmm. in other people's work by not actually seeing to their own affairs. There's probably something that Paul's, probably part of the conversation here is with the kind of apocalyptic fervor that's happening in the Thessalonican church. The folks are so excited and nervous about uh, Jesus' second coming that they kind of start micromanaging each other instead of dealing with their own affairs. Uh, Hmm. And so I think if you wanted to get at that text a little bit, you could use Garden State to say, look, okay, Andrew is not a saint by no means, and he certainly doesn't have what we would call a, a traditionally stereotypical, like, virtuous work ethic, but also his dad's kind of a mess, right? And mm-hmm. his dad is, part of Andrew's problem is that he, his dad has insisted on being a psychiatrist for 15 years and has, um, and, and has kind of kept him under his thumb and is, you know, in Old Testament language, the, um, the, 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 the sour grapes have been passed on to the child here. Uh, and so I think maybe that's a way of helping a church that might otherwise participate in a bunch of millennial bashing, try to look at some of its own stuff too. Anyway. Yeah, not, not to mention that I think the, the movie tends to hint that his mother's death might have been mm. a suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That, it, uh, that she was unhappy with the world that she was living in. And so there are these oblique ways in which the movie does reference that this stuff is being passed down. I think, um, the Peter Sarsgaard character and his mother have sure. a, a, a really sort of fraught relationship as mm-hmm. well that you can see is, um, and, it, and it is around work. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard's mother wants him to um, to be realist to to do to take these real estate tapes and mm-hmm. uh, mm. and they keep coming in contact with different people who have ta- who have made vocational decisions. The uh, the police officer at the beginning of the movie. Who says, "Oh, yeah, now I get to do this. I get to like, you know, point guns at people." Yeah, um, that, that scene did not age well for me. Oh, it's really bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, 
I think to recognize that the ways in which vocation identity work are integrally connected to each other is really present in this movie. And I think it's present in the text as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what other texts, Adam, or there other parts of the, of the lectionary reading that jumped out to you? Yeah. So I'm, I've been attracted to these apocalyptic readings in, in Luke and Malachi, especially this week. Um, so Luke, it's the end of Jesus' ministry where he gets to say, you know, not a stone here will be left on top of each other. And then Malachi has these visions of burning ovens and fire. Um, and I've been thinking really hard lately about what it means to empathize with those who long for the apocalypse. I'm going to assume that Jesus thinks that this message that he's giving is in some shape good news. Truly, from from my vantage in a place of privilege, it's totally terrifying. So how can I see past some of my own fears and hear in this message good news for some one or for something? Um, fear tends to encourage us to ignore Jesus' words here or explain them away with some sort of exegetical acrobatics. So much recent social theory discusses how social systems in which we are all caught have this tremendous control on our imaginations. Particularly mm -hmm. insidious is the ways in which the powerful get to dictate what counts as possible for the weak. Uh, and so then the arbitrary is then naturalized. And over time, people are encouraged to refuse what is already refused to them and see as predetermined um, the, that which is actually not predetermined. It's not inevitable. And so when I read the apocalyptic words of Jesus and the prophets, I'm reminded that people ultimately will not let their imaginations be colonized so easily. Hmm. Their rage and their pain will create new visions of the world and new roots of seeing that world enacted. And so when you live under the boot of the world, all mobility is denied. All human dignity is robbed of you. Your imagination is seemingly hobbled. What's left but visions of destruction? When you aren't allowed to dream, what is left but this apophatic imagination that sees hope in the absence of the current world? Uh, and I want to be able to sit with that as a, as a Christian minister, as a preacher, and as a person of privilege to just lean into that without having to solve it and just allow it to be. Mm -hmm. And when I think about this from Garden State's perspective, what bothers me is that I think Garden State needs more rage. There's no one in this movie who is particularly mm -hmm. angry. The Peter Sarsgaard character has this one venomous line where he says he's just a fast food knight. Hmm. And it's the it's it's the most bilious and um and poisonous part of the of his character, but that's about it. Hmm. Um this absence of feeling is the problem of Largeman in the movie, is that he doesn't have any feelings whatsoever. He can't cry when it's truly sad. Um, but I think this movie also occludes the problem that some people can't actually stop crying right now or they can't stop fighting. Um, I once heard James Cone speak and someone asked him if he was still angry. This was like probably eight or nine years ago. Hmm. Right. So he'd, he'd, he's had this long storied career. He, he wrote, um, I mean, he started writing in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. And they asked him like, Dr. Cone, are you, are you, you seem so angry back then. Are you still angry? And <laughs> he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, yes, I'm still furious. Rage courses through me every day of my life. 
and it was this incredibly honest answer that n- most people in the audience weren't ready to hear. Hmm. Uh, and so I want a portion of the church that's often interested in inoculating themselves with their good intentions and their helpful suggestions to begin to feel the rage either inside of them or outside of them and the pain that would actually create these apocalyptic texts and then hopefully seeing them as signs of hope. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I think that what we're running up against in the church, um, especially I'm thinking really specifically um, about race, um, is this notion of white fragility. And I, I know that um, that that's not a new term, um, um, though it is. it feels like it's come about more recent recently in just sort of mainstream culture, um, this sort of uh, fear of going there and what that would mean in terms of um, how you would have to uproot certain systems. Like if you were really to confront, you know, like what is actually happening in these structures of oppression um, and that the church is very much a part of perpetuating um, these systems, um, uh, these institutions are, you know, are part of that. You know, what would that mean to, um, how do how do we deal with um, that sort of white fear and that white, that sort of fragility, the vulnerability, the um, that sort of brokenness when, when that's really lauded so much still, you know, I mean, like if we think about sort of this uh, subculture of Christianity, that's a lot more progressive and liberal that there's, um, there's all this, like, we have to embrace our vulnerability and we have to embrace, you know, that's about being authentic, you know, authentic. And to me that it very much centers again, sort of this white perspective and white experience because vulnerability and fragility and being authentic isn't, um, something that comes very naturally for people on the margins, for people who have been sidelined for, um, for, you know, thousands of years, um, within the church and outside of the church. So, um, like I'm all about, I definitely think that that is, um, something that needs to be um, talked about more, um, for sure, in terms of, uh, you know, how do we bring out some of that, the urgency that comes with rage, you know? Um, and I think that that's d- definitely a part of some of the language and um, this uh, op- uh, more apocalyptic kind of um, those those visions and those traditions or whatever. Um, but how do we balance that with this, um, with, with, with communities that really press up against it um, because they're trying to, preserve and maintain a certain perspective and way of life. And, um, you know, even if it's contrary to the gospel, in my opinion. Yeah, that's the hard thing. I think uh, what I admire about scripture is I think that it's both there. I I think that these apocalyptic sayings of Jesus really still need to be there and they get ignored a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think that they're some of the most powerful moments of understanding the needs of those who are um, who are being oppressed, but also who are being ignored, I think it can combat obliviousness in uh, in this world hmm. by creating this moment of empathy by saying, like, okay, so help me understand why you think Jesus would ever say such a thing, um, and. I don't think I think you're right. A lot of congregations are unwilling to go there because there's all sorts of consequence or potential consequences to their ways of life, to um, their comfort, to any number of different things. And I want I, I when when I run up against the uh, the resistance of a group of people, I, I turn back to Scripture and lean into its authority a lot of times. Yeah. If only so that I don't have to say like. 
oh, listen to this scholar or listen to this group of people because I know that they don't trust those people to begin with, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it doesn't, mm-hmm. like rhetorically, it doesn't, it's not, it's not generally that effective. I can mm-hmm. usually be confident that they recognize scripture as some measure of authority in their life. Yeah. So there's a pretty rich feast of different scriptures for this coming Sunday. Uh, and I, I hope that you've gotten a, a good sample of a bunch of different directions that you could potentially go between the apocalyptic and the Thessalonians and the um, uh, and Isaiah's kind of rich vision. Um, but I oh, that Isaiah passage is so beautiful. I don't, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think we did it enough justice. It's, it's yeah. one of the most stunning parts of the scripture. It's just so tremendous. Yeah, so. No, fully agreed. But I, I do think it's probably time for uh, us to move on. And that means, unfortunately, it's time for us to say farewell to Mihi. Mihi, thank you so much for joining us uh, and taking the time to be with us and share your wisdom and your insight. Thanks, Mihi. Thanks. I love being here. And I felt like we could have talked for a lot more. I had a lot more questions for you guys. So so maybe next time. <laughs> well, maybe next time. Let's <laughs> next do it. Time. Next time. For sure. <laughs> for sure. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just another chance to get another preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Matt, what is your postlude for this week? So I just started watching Westworld on HBO. Are, are you are you watching it, Adam? You're... Yeah, I'm three episodes in. Yeah, that's about where I am, something like that. Uh, so I'm not caught up at all, and certainly not by the time this show airs. Uh, but I, I, I'm just thinking about it a little bit. Westworld is the HBO reboot of this 1970s Michael Crichton genre movie about a futuristic Wild West theme park. Uh, in the show, it's populated by AI robots who are programmed to serve the guests um, very often like as uh, sex workers or as like kind of Wild West theme characters who then die on command and can be patched up and sent back out again. This is, you know, one of those shows where robots gradually become sentient and presumably kill people, and I'm kind of in, just like, you know, yeah, we did me too. <laughs> X Machina all over again, right? Right, um, right. There's a lot we could talk about here, but I'm hooked into this one thing. Like, this show is basically video game logic, right? Guests enter, they are players in a, basically a, a massively multiplayer online game, except it's in real life. The AI hosts are the non-playable characters who are programmed to offer them a variety of available missions and activities. So you can, there's the guy who, you know, comes up to approach you because he knows where there's some gold buried and he's the quest giver for like the fetching gold quest. And after one of those activities is completed, the host is programmed to reset so that the next guest can do the same activity if he or she wishes. So this means that the experience of being one of these AI hosts is the experience of doing the same thing over and over again without remembering each time that they've done it before. The whole point is that they don't remember because they have to be able to be kind of authentically honest about being in this experience with the with the guest. Until, of course, um, they start to wake up a bit and they start to have memories that are leaking around, which is the kind of jumping off point for the show. And what's interesting to me is like what two and a half episodes in or wherever I am, we're not really seeing them register these memories on their faces. When they go through these experiences, we just watch them do these same loops with minor variances every time, trusting that the experience that they're having are, are that the other experiences they've already had and the memories that are leaking in are kind of gradually informing the ways in which they experience these new, these loops over and over, which is interesting to me because in some ways it's kind of interestingly liturgical. Like, it's about this public returning to the same story over and over 
trusting that it means something slightly different every time because of what the people who you see, um, maybe in the church with you, because of the new experiences that they bring to it every time beyond the boundaries of the worship space. It's like I stand in the pulpit every Sunday, and there are parts of our service that are more or less the same every week. The parts of it that we um, intentionally loop back to over and over again. And my trust is that even though it kind of looks the same on the outside, that on the inside it's different because you bring new memories with you every time. Now that's like a weird, that's kind of a left field way of approaching this show from the church. There's more um, basic ones, but I'm pretty confident this show is going to spawn a million media studies conference papers, and that's just my uh, offbeat proposal for one of them. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's evocative in some ways because there are some days in leading worship where I feel like the host, and there are some days when I feel like the guest. Um, where I feel I look out and I feel like I'm the only one doing something different and I'm the only one who can break from whatever it is the the story is supposed to be. Right. And then there are some days where I feel like I'm the only one I'm just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Well, in some um, ways I feel like that's actually in some ways my call too is to be the one who um has that sense of thread back to the original story and maintains it and tries to draw people in. Um so yeah, it cuts both ways. Yeah, and that's why the show is evocative because when these hosts start gaining memory, then things can get weird and different, right? And right. I think that's what makes us different to some extent as people who do the same thing over and over again is that we have the memory that we've done it over and over again. And we believe that that memory might be dangerous enough to change something. Right. I mean, the, the table as a site of dangerous memory is a sort of well-hewn path within liturgical theology, um, that the anamnesis is this moment of remembering something in the past, re-saying this thing that we say over and over and over again, recognizing that when we remember that thing, we make it new into this time and place. So Westworld is liturgical theology. You, you heard it here first, folks. So when some other fool at a conference gets up and gives that paper, just I want, you know, appropriate footnotes. Right. Adam, yeah, exactly. Adam, what do you have? So um, I have a question, uh, and it's something that I'm working on right now and for some writing that I'm doing. Uh, and I'm going to pose it to you because I want to hear you answer it. But I also pose it to anyone who's listening to come to our Facebook and, and answer this question. Why are there so many clergy detectives? So I'm reading this I'm reading Grant Chester, which is a very English, um, relatively new set of stories about a Anglican priest outside of Cambridge who solves mysteries both in his parish and at Cambridge. Right. Post-war. Yeah. So it's set in that post-war era. And as I read it, it has shades of Sherlock Holmes, both in form, in the sense that these are smaller stories. It's not one narrative throughout a whole novel. It's a number of different mysteries in each book. Um, there's Father Dowling. There's Father Brown. There are um, uh, there are all sorts of clergy detectives. Why? I mean, I can tell you why I think clergy would be a good detective. 
But I'm not right. entirely sure that is the same question as what kinds of cultural forces have led various have led the BBC or others to create a bunch of fictional clergy detectives. Yeah, but I, I think that they're probably co- connected. So give me your why you think that they'd be good detectives. Well, I mean, the the virtue of the calling is a certain amount of um, uh, as a flexible schedule, right? I mean, I can right, I, I, right. I, I, I can go wherever I want, whenever I want, more or less. Um, I also get entree into people's houses and into their lives that other folks don't get. So people will tell clergy things and invite clergy into spaces that that others that that you don't invite the Comcast installation guy into. All, uh, both of which show up in these books in really specific ways. So right, I'm 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 vibing. Uh, I I think it's interesting that it's British. Um, I think that uh, be, because the the the. Um, established church in the UK has been so on such a documented decline. Uh, I think it's interesting that the clergy would show up as a kind of kind of moral center in some ways. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the books well enough to know whether that's true. But in most cases, in a, your kind of basic detective book, the, the the detective itself or him or herself is more or less morally neutral. And so I, I think it's interesting that uh, as opposed to these places where the clergy um, get uh, drawn down into the mud in some ways. There's less of that here, which is kind of curious to me. Right. And I think connected to that is this idea that that clergy ought to have some arbiter of good and evil and the ability to spot it. Right. And therefore, that would make them predisposed to detective work to notice where they where duplicity and mendacity are showing up to notice um, where something is wrong. I think recognizing the, the sort of Britishness of this trope is also important considering the parish, everyone has a parish. So conceivably, it's not just the people in your church that you have access to, it's anybody in your parish. And so it, the entry that you're granted is is actually wider than any one church in America would actually give you. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, yeah. I think this is a, a little bit of the conversation that we had around Ghostbusters, which is the the parish priest and parish clergy as like lo- local municipal utility, uh, who, yeah. who who is um, who is able to uh, play a certain amount of kind of zone defense around this geographic area by virtue of position, and maybe in some ways that makes it even makes it more sense that it's British, um, where you have that sense of. Um, parochial deep kind of parochial boundaries uh yeah i i I think i'm also pushing towards as i think about this and as we have this conversation uh detective novels are small theodicies because the central question is why right we get the body at the beginning we know what has happened um and then we spend the rest of the story figuring out why it has happened yeah, a lot of times we learn who's done it halfway through the story, but the motive becomes the driving force of the narrative. Um, so to to ask this question of theodicy, this sort of why, it seems appropriate to find someone whose job is, it is in some sense um, revol- whose job revolves around those why questions. I, I just think from a sort of literary standpoint, the central questions of detective novels lend themselves to a vocation that has some similar purpose. Yeah. Have you gone back to read the Brother Cadfield novels? 
No, what's that? Uh, so Brother Cadfell is a, 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 a medieval monk who solved m- mysteries in and around the monastery and the community. It's written in the like 80s and 90s by a woman named Ellis Peters. Um, so you've got to check those out because that's part of the, the deep the deep DNA here is the Brother Cadfell stuff. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I I I read through in the name of the rose again, and oh, yeah. uh, so the Echo book I think is playing a lot with that. He, he's such a keen observer of uh, of culture and trope. Sure. So, um, and then we'll go back to um, to Chesterton and read some of of his stuff too, because I think it I think there's that's an Earth source as well. Anyway, so if you have any ideas to add to this i think we're we're pushing around this question but it's a it's one that i've been sitting with for a little while now and i'd appreciate any feedback that you all have well i think that about wraps it up for this episode but we are not quite done yet next time we get together we'll be talking to tim hughes who is associate pastor at brown memorial park avenue presbyterian church in baltimore and here by the virtue of magic digital movie stuff he is to tell us what we're going to be watching together tim what are we doing Hey, Matt and Adam. I am uh, Tim Hughes. I'm really looking forward to talking with you guys about uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Uh, Well before I realized how much I loved Christopher Nolan, I knew how much I loved The Prestige, this movie about these two rival magicians. Um, It's a movie about magic, but it's also, I think, a movie about what is real and what is not real, and it's about the relationship between showmanship um, and wonder and miracles. And so, as a person who's interested in church and churchcraft, I'm really interested in uh, in how we think about magicians and ministers and what constitutes a real worship experience. So I look forward to talking about that. Well, I'm really excited for that. I'm excited for that conversation, and I look forward to having the time with you, Adam. You too, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Come meet us on Facebook if you have any questions or if you have any comments that you want to share with us. Every little bit helps other people find the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Yeah.